you turn with me please to the passage that we read together, Romans chapter 8, and I'd like to consider verse 1 with you, Romans chapter 8 and at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, and so on. Now we're alerted by the uh, opening words of this verse that Paul is assuming that we understand something of what has gone before. He is drawing a conclusion to an argument that he began at the beginning of the uh, book and uh, he comes here and says, now therefore, well what does that therefore refer to? Well it is the um, uh, need of justification uh, that uh, before God that he has been dealing with in the previous chapters. In the opening chapters, he has demonstrated that all men without exception, whether they be Jew or Gentiles, are under the condemnation of God by nature, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh, the Jews with their great privileges are likewise in the same category as the Gentiles. There is none righteous, no, not one, Paul tells us. And he shows us that justification before God is not through the works of the law, but through uh, faith in uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He demonstrates that in his uh, in chapter 3, where he speaks about the alternative uh, to the failure of acceptance with God through the works of the law, when he says God has sent forth um, his Son, he has set him forth. Um, uh, uh, he has provided a redeemer uh, for sinners in Jesus Christ. He gives an example of that, uh, justification by faith in chapter 4, where he speaks of Abraham's faith and how it was not by law but by faith in the God of grace. Chapter 5 reminds us that no matter how bad things are, where sin abounds, grace does, does much more abound. Chapter 6 has dealt with the, um, uh, the uh, need for walking uh, uh, in uh, righteousness as those who are justified by faith. And chapter 7 has told us something of the difficulty of that and the struggle of Christians. And it is against that kind of background uh, that uh, the apostle is drawing his theological arguments to a conclusion. There is now therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the um, uh, uh, flesh, but after the spirit. He uh, here is dealing with the consequences of his argument. Uh, but it's one thing to follow Paul's theological argument, isn't it? We might put a amen to everything he has to say from chapters 1 to 7. We might be uh, in uh, harmony with his position, uh, with his theology. But it's an altogether different thing to grasp what he says practically. 
And uh, that is often the problem that we face, and it's that problem that I want to address um, as we look at this verse. The problem not of the theological accuracy of Paul, for um, needless to say it is correct, it is, it is the revelation of the word of God itself, but the practical grasping or application of that to us. And the way to uh, demonstrate that we need this kind of um, understanding is to ask ourselves, in the light of verse 1 of chapter 8, how secure do you feel as a Christian? How secure do you feel as a Christian? It says there is now therefore no condemnation. But the likelihood is that if you try and answer the question, well, how secure do you feel as a Christian, that your likely response will be that you have doubt and that you fear and there is a degree of insecurity and there are times of dejection and a loss of hope. There are times of great concern. And the reason for that is brought out in what follows the opening of verse 1, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. And when we come to that part of the verse, we are sad, uh, sad to say that we fall grievously short of walking after the flesh, uh, of walking after the spirit, and we are found regularly walking after the flesh. And that is what gives rise to the concerns and the doubts. You think of those aspects of the Christian life. You think of prayer. We find ourselves, do we not, going over the same old ground again and again. We have asked for forgiveness for certain sins, and yet we pray for the forgiveness of those sins again and again. That's particularly uh, so with those sins and faults of youth, perhaps. Those sins, I'm not speaking about habitual sins, that we have to deal with every day, but perhaps something we have done in the past and we find ourselves again and again, the evil one brings this to our attention and we're praying for forgiveness for what we have prayed for forgiveness before. Does that show us a great stability and security in this um, uh, uh, statement of Paul's? No, just, uh, no condemnation for them in Christ Jesus. You think of our obedience. Who of us would claim uh, to be faithful in our obedience to Christ? Isn't it a shame to us? Isn't it a concern to us that we uh, so regularly and uh, almost daily fall, indeed daily fall short of the standards that God sets for us? Um, uh, you think of how those standards were brought before us in the psalm we have just sung. Who shall ascend into the hill of God? Who shall stand in his holy place? The man with clean hands, a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to other gods, nor sworn deceitfully. And we find ourselves, even if we only look at that psalm, that we have failed, we fall short. And so, Again, these are the kind of things that give rise to insecurity in the light of this dogmatic statement of Paul's, there is no condemnation. You think of witnessing. We are called to uh, show forth 
what Christ has done. Be ready to give a, 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 a defense for the hope that lies in us. And how often we fail in that regard. How often we fall short in that regard. And so if we were to measure our confidence in this um, statement of no condemnation by a reflection upon ourselves, upon our prayers, upon our obedience, upon our witnessing, we would not take this upon our lips. We would be so ashamed to even suggest that this would apply to us. The reason for the insecurity comes from ourselves. I don't suppose there's any true Christian here who would find any sense of insecurity in the work of Christ. As they look at the Savior, they see nothing but perfection. He is the one with clean hands, the pure heart, and so on. He is the one who is the very template, the model of holiness, of life. And so we are not ascribing to him um, any failure. We're not saying we are insecure because we don't um, uh, have confidence that Christ can save sinners because we know from the testimony of scriptures that Christ can save sinners. And we are um, uh, not um, uh, uh, complaining that God's way of salvation is deficient or defective in any way. That's not where the problem lies. It lies in our sense of personal failure. It lies in our own um, inconsistencies, in our own imperfect sanctification. Now, some have um, uh, uh, come up with the idea that what we need is a second blessing, and somehow or other, um, all you need is some kind of work of the Spirit that will instantly make you utterly holy, and you need never um, have any doubts about your security again. Um, uh, others would bury their head in the sands and say, well, you know, there's not really any problem. Um, you know, once you've been saved, these sins don't really count. But we know only too well how insecurity arises, how our questioning of our standing before God is jeopardized sometimes in a moment in an unguarded word an unguarded action it doesn't take much to as it were knock away that security that we thought we had and so how are we supposed to deal with this well it's not by a way of second blessing it's not by simply more diligent application of the law. That's not how the New Testament handles it. The New Testament handles it by directing our attention to Jesus Christ. And uh, so we ask the question following on from the first, how secure do you feel as a Christian? Uh, and we ask, how secure are you? as a Christian. How secure are you as a Christian? You see, Paul's views in stark contrast to what we so often think ourselves. He's saying there's no condemnation, and we are often condemning ourselves. No condemnation, self-condemnation. 
There used to be, says Paul, condemnation. There used to be um, uh, that status of being under the wrath of a holy God. But he says that's gone. That is dealt with in Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that God has declared his people justified. It's not a question of deserts. How often do you hear Christians saying, I don't deserve this? Well, of course you don't. Even if you were a great saint, you wouldn't deserve it. It wouldn't make any difference. You don't deserve grace. Grace, by its very nature, is the application of undeserved favor. And so it's got nothing to do with desert. It's a status that God applies. It's a judgment that God passes. You are declared to be just. You are declared to be not condemned. Now notice, it's not you are declared to be without sin. That's not what he's saying. And you only need to read chapter 7 to see that he couldn't say that. But he's saying there is no condemnation. What he is saying that when you are in Christ, there is no legal process against you. It's not that you, when you were converted, were justified and then you need to be justified again. It's that in your your in the declaration of your justification when you come um, and are united to Christ, that justification declared is permanent. It is inconceivable that God, having justified the sinner on the basis of Christ's finished work, would demand satisfaction from you for that very same work that Christ has satisfied his law for. There is therefore no condemnation. What Paul is saying in effect is this. You are actually in Christ placed beyond the reach of condemnation. It means those who are um, uh, uh, in Christ are freed from the guilt of sin. They're freed from the dominion of sin. They're freed from the curse of the law. They're freed from the perdition, the hell that is due to sin, despite the fact that they are still sinners. They have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, and they stand uncondemned. That is the Bible's view of every true-hearted believer. Why is there such a discrepancy between what Paul is saying and what we experience and feel so often? Well, Paul is looking at the objective reality. And we are getting caught up in our feelings. I don't feel saved. I don't feel holy. I don't feel in Christ. Dear friends, that is bound to lead to self-condemnation. Paul is talking about how we are, if we're in Christ, how we are, how we really are, if we're in Christ. 
and that is in a state of no condemnation. So how secure are you? Well, you only need to go to the end of this chapter to see how secure you are. Who shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? And Paul ranges a whole series of things that you might conceivably think could come between yourself and your God. And he says, none of these things can separate you. None of them. Nothing can come between you and your God because of what Christ has done. There is now therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Well, if that, if that security is true of every true-hearted Christian, what is it that gives us this security? I've already uh, hinted of that as we've been uh, going through. What is it that gives us this security? Where is our confidence resting? Where is our hope settled and founded? It cannot be in our own sanctification. We cannot take comfort in this no condemnation simply because we've reached a certain stage of sanctification. For as I've already mentioned, in a moment you can come crashing down. You think of David, the elevated heights to which he rose, only in a moment to come crashing down into the most heinous and grievous of sins. We can't take comfort in our sanctification. We can thank God for it. We can indeed strive to be more holy. We can persevere um, uh, uh, in our walk of holiness, but we cannot take our security from our sanctification. You think of Romans 7. And it tells us of the ongoing battle that the Apostle Paul had. We would say that Paul was a holy man, I'm sure. We would want to uh, think of him as um, more advanced in sanctification than we are. And yet he is saying, the good that I would, I do not, and the evil that I would not, that I do. O wretched man that I am. That is Paul. He's not saying my hope and my confidence is in my success in this battle with the flesh. He says he's a wretched man. And he knows that sanctification will never merit um, uh, God's favor in and of itself. Nor does our obedience to the law. It's not that we are to be disobedient to the law. We obey the law if we're Christians out of love to God. If you love me, keep my commandments. But isn't it true that there are many times we obey the law legally? We obey them for the, the law for legal reasons. We're afraid of punishment. We're afraid of getting caught. Or if 
not that, then is it not true that we obey the laws that we know that we've broken or are in danger of breaking? And very often we are guilty of sins of ignorance. We may have offended a brother, a sister in Christ. We may have done something that we ought not to have done. We may have neglected something, omitted something that we should have, um, uh, uh, that we should have done. Our obedience is not the ground of our security. It is um, uh, uh, not because we war against the flesh. That is natural for a spiritual man or woman to war against the flesh. It's, it's part and parcel of being in Christ. If we are in Christ, we will walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. That is a given in the Christian life. But we are not justified because of that. If anything, we are doing that because we are justified. These things are shaky ground for security. If we build upon these things, we're like the foolish man building upon the sand. They can be washed away in a moment. And Paul does not point us in the, the direction of these things. What does he do? He says our security is founded, grounded in Christ. Now it comes out in this verse, it comes out in many places um, in Paul's writings, but there is now no, therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. You think back to the end of chapter 7. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I Thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Not I thank God I'm going to be more diligent, more sanctified, but I thank God that Christ will save me. He is the foundation. Our security, our being uncondemned, rests solely in our union with Jesus Christ. It's them who are in Christ Jesus, those who are united to him, those um, uh, who by faith have laid hold upon him for salvation. There is nothing but condemnation for those who have not done that. There is nothing but condemnation for those who are out of Christ. Children of wrath, even as the saints of God were. But there is no condemnation to them who have laid hold on Christ. And it is by him that we die to the law. Romans 7 verses 1 to 4 tells us about that. How we die to the law, how the law as it were, loses its grip over us because in Christ we're dead to the law. It has no locus in our lives as a condemning and um, a judging um, a, a, a power. It is by him that we live. We have been raised together with him.
as Paul says in Ephesians 2. We have died with him. We have been raised together with him. We are seated together with him in the heavenly places. It is in him, in Christ, that we live and move and have our being. And it is in Christ that we stand uncondemned before the throne of God. And so Paul would have us look there. Again, verses we looked at the last time I was here, the, um, uh, the no condemnation rests upon the fact um, uh, as, uh, as, as, as we read in verses 33 and 34, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. I mentioned last time I was here that these words originally refer to Christ as the servant. It is because he has died. He has risen. He is seated at the right hand of God. He makes intercession for us. That the um, uh, words, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect, has that wider application to all the elect of God. It is because of what Christ has done that our standing before God is that of no condemnation. Who is he that condemneth? And the question is, who can condemn Christ? The answer is none. None can condemn Christ. Therefore, all who are in him are not only raised together with him, um, exalted together with him, seated together with him, but they are also in that state of non-condemnation in him. Do you see how the New Testament draws our focus away from our feelings? That's where we naturally go to. I don't feel like a Christian. You all know the Monday morning feeling. You waking up and you, you hardly feel human sometimes, let alone a Christian. Well, that's what feelings are like. They fluctuate. You eat a good meal and you've got good feelings. You eat a bad meal, you've got bad feelings. They can change like that. They are so fickle. But Christ's finished work is finished. It doesn't change. That is where our security lies. If you want to base your security on anything, base it upon Christ. And he is the one who is described in the scriptures as the rock of our salvation. What security there is there. Well, who has the right to feel like that? This is our last question. Who has the right to feel this secure? Well, those I've said who are in union with Christ. You see, it is the union with Christ that changes our status from condemned to non-condemned. It is our union with Christ that transforms us and makes us into a new creation. 
that inner life of the new creature is described, as I've said, in Romans chapter 7. There is a transformation of our wills. There is a transformation of our thoughts, a transformation of our behavior, of our attitudes, of our desires. The good that I would, I do not. There's the will. But there's also the desires. The good that I, uh, the evil that I would not, that I do. And so we are reminded of that transforming work of the, uh, uh, that the union, our union with Christ brings about. And here in this verse, that transformation is described both negatively and positively. We walk not after the flesh. We walk not after the flesh. In other words, we are no longer governed by the desires of the flesh or the loves of the flesh or the opposition of the flesh to the rule of God. I'm not saying we don't experience those things. There are times when our desires are fleshly. And there are times when our loves are unholy. And there are times when we are rebellious against God. But that is not our desire. That is not, as it were, the underlying um, uh, 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 progress. That is not the, the reality that we would confess in the cold light of day. We sin and we hate the sin. We love sin and we hate that we love sin. We're disobedient to God and we hate that we disobey God. These are the things that are true of a Christian, the good that I would. That's what I want to do. I want to do the good. I do not. The evil that I would not, and I wish that I wasn't doing it, that I do. That's what gives rise to the wretched man syndrome that every true Christian experiences. But that experience is no longer, as it were, the underlying nature. We are inclined towards God. We are desirous to please God. We are hateful towards sin. And so we walk not after the flesh, but we walk after the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 speaks about that contrast. The works of the flesh, the works of the Spirit, or the fruit of the Spirit. Our life in Christ is regulated by his will. Lord, what would you have me to do? Not my will, but thine be done. It's based upon and regulated and given security by his work. Not our pathetic works, but his work. 
And so we draw comfort from the fact that he has the clean hands. He has the holy heart. He is the one who is acceptable to God. And that is how at last, despite all the sin, that abounding sin, grace will much more abound and we will stand accepted in the beloved at the last. And that is where our hope is. It is firmly upon Christ and we can say that the Spirit's regulation of our life, the Spirit's motivating us, guiding us, directing us, chastising us, correcting us, that these are the evidences of being um, in Christ, walking in Christ. Now, we've got to be careful here because all of us know that sometimes when we're looking at marks of grace, we can go too far in the application of looking for marks of grace. And what I mean by that is this. If I ask you, do you love the brethren? A true Christian might instinctively say, yes. But then they begin to think of all the evidences that they don't. The thing I said to so-and-so. The lack of love and concern. You see... Again, we're going back to self-examination. And we have to confess before God, I don't love the brethren the way I should. Christ loved the brethren perfectly. And my hope for acceptance, even for my pathetic attempts at loving the brethren, are resting on Christ, not my own. It's not my graces give me security although I should have those graces it's not my obedience that gives me that security although I should be obedient Paul knew that if this test was applied to him he would fail because he's just told us in Romans chapter 7 he has to say that if the test is my works or my graces or anything like that I'm a failure, O wretched man that I am. Paul, where are you resting then if you've got such a shabby show of graces? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, graces are an earnest pointing to the work of God in our lives or, if you will, pointing to the bridegroom. He passed the test. He faced the judgment of God and paid the penalty. He fulfilled the law and made it honourable. He is the one who is our security. How secure do you feel as a Christian? Well, dear friends, that was a loaded question, wasn't it? Because feelings actually are not the issue. How secure are you as a Christian? You're as secure as Christ is secure. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? 
and in all your struggles and all your strivings and in all your disappointment at your um, uh, lack of grace and your poor graces and your limited sanctification, look away from these things to Christ. And there you will find comfort and security and strength. That is the one, or that is where you look, and that is where you will look on the day when you stand before the judgment seat. You'll be clothed with the righteousness of Christ, not your own. Let us pray. Father, we bless and thank thee for thy goodness and mercy to us, and pray that thou wilt be pleased to draw near to us. We acknowledge our own sinful failures, but we are thankful that Christ is our all in all. We thank thee for his perfections, and we ask that thou wilt give us an eye to his, his glory, his perfect work, his perfect obedience and that we would take our comfort from that. Continue with us and have mercy upon us, Lord, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Let us conclude singing from Psalm 84, and we'll sing verses 8 to 12. Psalm 84, verses 8 to 12. Interesting. This whole idea of looking to Christ and looking away from ourselves to another for our justification is brought out even in the Old Testament. See God our shield. Look upon the face of thine anointed. Isn't that wonderful? Lord God of hosts, my prayer here. O Jacob's God, give ear. See God our shield. Look upon the face of thine anointed dear. For in thy courts one day excels a thousand. Rather in my God's house will I keep a door than dwell in tents of sin. To the end of the psalm.
stand for the benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.